I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So goes the third and final stanza of the Apostles' Creed. But it didn't always read that way. No, the earliest form of this third stanza, stanza spoke simply of, quote, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh. Surprisingly, it said nothing about the forgiveness of sins. Not that the early church didn't affirm the forgiveness of sins. In fact, throughout the New Testament, that was shorthand for the entire gospel message. According to the Apostle Paul, he handed on, handed on what he in turn received, that Christ died for our sins. This truth has always been fundamental to the Christian faith. But really, the question has always been, how does this forgiveness of sins play out between you and me? Between one member of the church who sins against another? In other words, how is this vertical forgiveness we receive from God related to the horizontal landscape of our lives? Now, this was actually a hot topic for the early church. For back in the 4th century, Christians were still being subjected to periods of persecution under various Roman emperors. And one of the most intense seasons of this persecution occurred under Emperor Diocletian. In the year 303, Emperor Diocletian ordered that the property of Christians be seized, their books burned, and their places of worship destroyed. And all the Christian leaders were to be imprisoned, tortured, or killed. That is, unless they turned from their Christian faith and made sacrifices to the Roman gods. You can only imagine the bloodbath that ensued. Countless frightened Christians, including, of course, many clergy, cracked under the pressure and in turn made sacrifices to the Roman gods. The emperor even permitted them to make sacrifices in mass as, as large groups, making it as easy as possible for them to quietly renounce their Christian faith. So lots and lots of defections occurred during this time. But before long, the persecutions cooled off and things returned to normal, and Christianity was again tolerated as part of Rome's pluralistic empire. And that's when these apostate believers, known by the faithful as traitors, started trickling back to their churches as if nothing had happened. Well, needless to say, this situation created quite a pastoral crisis for many congregations. What should be done with believers who had renounced their baptism? My brother stood firm for Jesus and was martyred because of it, but you traitors caved to the pressure, and now you want us to welcome you back into the fold? What was the church to do about this? Was there a way back into the church? Should they be baptized a second time? Or should they be permanently excluded from the Christian community? These were difficult questions. Questions of Christian identity, of the nature of forgiveness. What is it that makes you a follower of Jesus? And what can be done if you have strayed from his ways, if you renounced him, 
Is the church the church of the pure and the perfect? Or can struggling souls who have made these grave mistakes find reentry into the community of the faithful? Well, after much debate, this fourth century crisis eventually came to a resolution as Christian leaders reaffirm that the church includes anyone who has been baptized, no matter what has happened since, as long as that person is now demonstrating repentance. The church is not only for the pure and spiritually successful, praise the Lord, but for failures too. Even dramatic and public failures do not exclude a person from the grace of God and therefore from the church. So when the quote-unquote traitors returned to the faith, they didn't have to be rebaptized. No, they simply needed to show through a changed way of life that they were now taking their baptism seriously. Because forgiveness is always available in the church thanks to the work of Jesus Christ. And these conclusions were so important to the early church that they put a new line into the baptismal confession so that today in the Apostles' Creed, we affirm it together. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And then in 381, the Nicene Creed expanded that line to one we will all recite later in this service, that, that we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This has become the church's way to remind each other that the forgiveness we receive in Christ is bound up in the forgiveness we extend to others. That the forgiveness found in our vertical relationship with God, yes, it has some serious horizontal obligations. This is clearly the main point of Jesus' famous parable of the unforgiving servant, which we heard read a moment ago from Matthew 18. The lesson of this parable is uh, so obvious and compelling that it, it sort of preaches itself. In fact, I could just read it aloud once more and we'd call it a day. But the simplicity of this parable should not lead us to imagine that the issue of forgiveness is a simple matter. Far from it. Extending forgiveness to others is as complex as it gets. And I hope to bring out some of these complexities here in a moment. But first, the larger point remains. Receiving God's forgiveness is bound up with us extending forgiveness to others. That's the, the scandal of this parable. It sort of shocks our socks off when we hear it, doesn't it? I mean, why does Jesus say this? That those who refuse to forgive will themselves be refused forgiveness from God. Isn't that out of sorts? with the rest of the gospel? Actually, not at all. <laughs> For the New Testament speaks with one voice on this matter. Forgiveness isn't like a, a Christmas present that a doting grandfather gives to his sulky grandson, even as the grandson hasn't bought a single thing for anyone else. Forgiveness isn't like the meal that will be waiting for you back home, even if you fail to provide food for the hungry living next door. No, forgiveness is a different kind of thing altogether. Forgiveness is more like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale fresh air if you have already breathed some out. 
However, if you insist on holding it all in, refusing to give someone the breath of life they so desperately need, then you won't be able to take any more in for yourself. And before you know it, you will be the one who is suffocating. That's actually what jumped out at me this week as I revisited this passage, that line where it says that the slave seized his fellow slave by the throat, demanding that he pays what he owes. The irony here is that while he's cutting off the air pathways of his brother, he's the one who is actually about to suffocate. This one who has already been forgiven so much. He owed the king, as a literal translation would put it, a myriad of talents. Now, a myriad was the largest number in ancient Greek, the number 10,000. And a talent was the largest monetary unit back then, worth 6,000 denarii. Just to give you an idea of what kind of money we're talking about here, one denarius was about a day's worth of wages. So one talent by itself was already a huge sum of money, representing wages earned over the course of half a person's lifetime. Now multiply that number by 10,000, and you'll have your myriad of talents. We're talking about a ton of money here. I think the technical term is a bajillion dollars. <laughs> That's what the slave owes the king. It's an impossible debt to repay. But amazingly, we are told, out of pity for him, the king releases the slave and forgives this massive amount of debt. And so surely, at that moment, a breath of fresh air fills his lungs. He is now finally free. And so what does he do with this newfound freedom? He immediately turns to his fellow slave and seeing that he owes him only 100 denarii, an amount that is 600,000 times smaller than the amount he owed the king. Well, he seizes him by the throat and demands that the debt be paid. You see what he's doing. He's holding in his breath all that fresh air trapped inside his lungs so that now he's on the verge of suffocating himself. Tragically, he, he has locked himself out of God's forgiveness because his heart is locked up with resentment. This is a hard one. It's one of the many paradoxes of the Christian life. Like with your money, you know, the tighter your grip, the more you spend it on yourself, the more miserable and discontent you become. But the more you loosen your grip, the more generous you are with your money, the more joyful and content you become. Such are the, the paradoxes of our faith. The, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for Christ will find it. When I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Well, the same kind of thing is true when it comes to forgiveness. It is only the merciful who will receive mercy. And when the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus replies with these words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
And just to sharpen the point, he goes on to make this statement right after teaching his disciples what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh my. The New Testament does speak with one voice here. And this is what we mean when we declare our faith and confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But still, we do need to stop for a brief moment and talk about some of the complexities of this high calling. Something our parable doesn't really go into, which means that it can easily be used in ways that it was never intended. For example, the parable doesn't mean for us to forgive and forget as if nothing happened. It doesn't mean that appropriate consequences for the offender should be swept under the rug. That's, that's not what this parable is about. A Christian leader who abuses his power shouldn't get to remain in his or her position just because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. A Christian husband who abuses his wife shouldn't demand that she remain in the relationship just because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. No, each of these situations should be handled, yes, with grace, but with wisdom and on a case-by-case basis because forgiveness, it's a complex matter. Sin changes things, and while restoration is always possible and is always ideal, the pathway to it will likely be complicated, right? What about those who don't think they did anything wrong to begin with? What does it mean to forgive them? What does that look like? It's complicated. And our parable doesn't speak directly to these kinds of questions, and we shouldn't force it to speak to these kinds of questions. Rather, the point of our parable is that one should never give up on making forgiveness and reconciliation the goal. That we should always be ready to take the necessary steps toward healing in ways that are appropriate to the situation and to the relationship. And that if confrontation has to happen, that it must always be done with forgiveness in mind, never revenge, right? It's also important to note that today's parable immediately follows another significant teaching from Jesus on the nature of offense and forgiveness. This was actually our gospel reading from last week, and it goes like this. If another member of the church sins against you, Jesus says, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. And if that doesn't work, then take one or two others with you. And if that doesn't work, tell it to the entire church. And if that doesn't work, then the offender is no longer part of the Christian community because of their refusal to repent. Now, whatever this might look like for us today, I believe in the least we are meant to hold it in one hand as we hold the message of today's parable in the other so that these two teachings can work in tandem in forming our work of reconciliation today. You see, there is a prerequisite, isn't there, for receiving the forgiveness of sins It's called repentance. Surprisingly, I've found that this can come as a shock to some Christians. Christians who tend to presume upon God's grace. Sometimes someone will say to me, Pastor, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care. Because I know God will forgive me. And so I'm going to keep doing it anyway. And I have to tell them, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. God will not forgive you. His forgiveness is for everyone, yes, but it requires 
repentance. That's what we are reminded of each and every Sunday when the priest offers the words of absolution. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in His great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all, right? But it's to all who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to Him. You see, the church community cannot tolerate unrepentant sin without appropriate correction, but it must always be done with a willingness to forgive without limits. Our belief in the forgiveness of sins is a messy business, but it must always be done with great care and with great love so that when it becomes for us a way of life, this messy work of repenting and forgiving, repenting and forgiving, it becomes a beautiful expression of both the grace of God as well as the healing that he offers within his church. There's a reason that in the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins is listed under the third stanza on the Holy Spirit and the church rather than the second stanza concerning Jesus. It's not because the church doesn't recognize that Jesus secures our forgiveness. Rather, it's because it recognizes that we are called to be a people who extend that forgiveness to others. And so I ask you, do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Heavenly Heavenly Father, we are quick to answer that question with a hearty yes when it pertains our own forgiveness before your presence. But it is so hard to extend that same forgiveness to others. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, it's messy. And we need each other to figure how to do this well and with love. But Lord, give us the courage and the strength to be a people that not only breathe in fresh air, but breathe it out to our fellow brothers and sisters. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.